1: If we weren't sure before, the events of this week left no doubt. The backdrop of the 2024 campaign will be Donald Trump's many legal battles. Judge Aileen Cannon circles a day on the calendar for the classified documents trial as Trump receives a target letter from Jack Smith on his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan has been more outspoken than most Republicans when it comes to the former president, and he's coming up first. Plus, I've got a few thoughts about RFK Jr. after House Republicans platformed his dangerous conspiracy theories this week on Capitol Hill. Stacey Plaskett is the ranking Democrat on the committee that heard his testimony, and she joins me live. And later, a walk in the park with Congressman Jamie Raskin. We talk Shakespeare, battling cancer, and how he coped with tragedy while fighting for democracy. So on Friday, Judge Aileen Cannon announced that the trial in the classified documents case is set to take place on May 20th of next year. If you just did a little bit of math there, you're right. That falls smack in the middle of the heat of the 2024 presidential campaign, which means that Trump could already be the presumptive nominee by the time he goes to trial. Not only that, it means he could be convicted, even sentenced, before Election Day. This raises all sorts of questions, and frankly, they're questions that we as a country have never had to grapple with before. We're going to try to dig into some of those today on the show. Also this week, Special Counsel Jack Smith informed Trump that he is a target in the January 6th investigation. And I just want to have a sidebar on that for a moment, because I'm, I'm guilty of this, too. We all need to stop shorthanding this case as the January 6th investigation. And here's why. Because as vicious and violent as that day was, and it was both of those things, the insurrection was the culmination of a coordinated attempt to steal the 2020 election. The loud, physical attack on the Capitol followed a quiet, months-long attack on the rule of law and democracy itself. It involved creating slates of fake electors pledged to Donald Trump in states he had actually lost. It involved attempts to co-opt the Department of Justice to promote the big lie. It involved misleading donors and fundraising off of falsehoods. And then, of course, it involved standing back as a mob descended on the U.S. Capitol. All of these things are pieces in the larger puzzle that Jack Smith is putting together as he investigates Trump's systematic effort to stop the transfer of power, overturn a legitimate election, and incite a violent mob to attack the nation's capital. So let's all stop shorthanding it as the January 6th investigation, because as we prevent it from happening in the future, it's important to recognize it was more than a single day. Now, while some Republicans have inched slightly closer toward criticizing Trump, the party on balance has remained largely silent. My next guest, however, has been Anything But Silent. Joining me now is former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. So you're a savvy political guy, having been elected as a Republican governor in a blue state. If as we're looking toward a potential indictment um, in the overturn, the efforts to overturn the election, do you think that could change the dynamics in the Republican primary? Because so far, None of these indictments or legal troubles have really hurt Trump, it seems.
2: Well, it hasn't hurt Trump the way that most people would imagine it should have hurt Trump. uh, But it has impacted the dynamic of the Republican primary race. Look, the fact that nobody else can get any uh, traction or attention because all we're talking about is Donald Trump's legal troubles. So while... Uh, People haven't left uh, Trump as quickly as I would have hoped. There are about half the people in the Republican primary uh, who do not want Donald Trump. They just can't decide on which of the other 11 candidates they want to support because they aren't they aren't getting much uh, oxygen or airtime.
1: Well, you have not—you've been not not silent, and you've really been calling out former President Trump for his involvement in his efforts to overturn the election. You did um, tweet this week, though, uh, quote, We have two very unpopular potential nominees, and both of them potentially face very serious legal troubles. It sounds like with that tweet—but tweets don't give all the context—that you were drawing an equivalence there. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of clear it up. Are you comparing— Trump's efforts to overturn the election with legal troubles or legal issues of Joe Biden?
2: Well, look, I've been very critical of Donald Trump from day one. And uh, th- fr- the very at the very beginning, when he was trying to put out the false lies about the stolen election, I was the first Republican in America to speak out against it. And I was very involved in the actual events of January 6th when I sent in the Maryland National I, Guard. I, I, knew you, I knew
1: you were, and you were very outspoken. So that's why <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that tweet to kind of yeah. clear up what You meant because it sounds like equivalency there.
2: Yeah, the tweet was it came from an appearance on another network uh, where they asked a a question about it. And my answer was that we do have 70 percent of the people in America do not want Donald Trump or Joe Biden to be president. They're both historically low approval numbers and they both are potentially facing legal troubles. That, that's all very true. But I wasn't trying to make a correlation on the you know which, which troubles were more important than, uh, the, than the other. Obviously, Trump's been indicted and probably will be indicted multiple more times than the current president has not. But he's certainly got some legal issues that he's, being, he's certainly concerned about.
1: Well, I think on that note, though, I think we can all agree that there's a difference between uh, not abiding by a subpoena Um, and returning highly classified documents and voluntarily returning. Oh, yeah. No, on the the
2: documents, it's very clear. But, you know, there are investigations going on on all all sorts of things involving the Biden family that are not that are also a distraction uh, from voters when we should be focused on, you know, who should be the next.
1: Well, I want to move on because there's a lot to cover. But Hunter Biden is not in office. He's not serving in government. So I think we can all agree not equivalent. I agree Um, with that. Uh, so, I wanted to ask you because you've answered this a number of times, so bear with me. But uh, would you categorically rule out voting for Donald Trump if he's the re- Republican nominee? Yes.
2: Um, I've said that over and over and over again. Didn't vote for him in either of his other two elections either.
1: And given that you've said also that you don't think he'll be the nominee, are there candidates out there? You've also been critical of DeSantis. Are there candidates out there that you think? Could have a shot of taking a month.
2: I sure hope so. I mean, I'm a little frustrated at this point in time that, as I said a moment ago, uh, nobody's really getting traction. So uh, Trump is at fifty percent in most polls, and most of the other folks. And I think you know, there are twelve candidates. Six of them are my former colleagues as governors. Um, I know most of the candidates running, and I think uh, maybe seven or eight of them are really capable, good candidates, but they're not getting much attention. And I'm hoping hoping that someone will rise up and become a candidate that I can get excited about and get behind somebody that maybe has a more hopeful, positive message that can take the party in a different direction. But as we sit here today, I can't tell you who that is going to be. Since
1: you know them all well, and I know you're not endorsing someone right now, you're welcome to, though. <laughs> yeah. uh, who should get more attention? Who's being undervalued or underestimated? In the I think most
2: primary? of the field. Uh, look, I think, uh, of course, Donald Trump is getting all the attention. He is the elephant in the room. Um, and But DeSantis was getting wall-to-wall coverage, but it's mostly been about his campaign failing to launch or to, that it's heading in the wrong direction. There are you a whole bunch of other folks that just are not getting anyone to pay attention. And they're strong. I mean, Tim Scott has got a great positive message. He's starting to come up. He's raised a lot of money and he's doing, you know, I think he's now moved into third place in Iowa. Um, Chris Christie came from nowhere to be in third place in New Hampshire. You endorsed him
1: in 2016, Chris Christie. Why not now?
2: Well, I'm just trying to wait and see how they perform. Either they're all he's a very good friend. And I'm glad that he's out there kind of taking it to Donald Trump and speaking truth to power. Uh, but we've got to, you know, see who's going to have the best chance of actually winning the election.
1: So you've said you aren't considering or pursuing a, a third party run, but you also did put out, I noticed, a couple of people, many people did, a couple campaign style videos. You've been out there quite publicly. If you were offered or asked to serve, uh, as the, uh, as a third party nominee, will you? Are you open to that?
2: Well, look, I've been involved in this organization for a long time. Five years ago, I started a group called An America United. Uh, Several years ago, I also agreed to be the honorary co-chair of No Labels Mm -hmm. with Joe Lieberman. Um, I'm a big believer in bipartisan cooperation and reaching across the aisle to get things done. That's how I was successful in the bluest state in America. Uh, but you know, this is far far too off in the future, and we don't know what's going to happen. I've said if uh, nobody wants the you know candidate A or candidate B, maybe there will be a candidate C. But it's right now I'm focused on getting the Republican Party on track and trying to nominate a good Republican that can uh, do a better job and that can potentially win a race in November.
1: So um, an NBC poll did show that 44 percent of registered voters would consider voting for a third party candidate. Those are the numbers that I have. Um, that's not that uncommon. Right. Because back in 2016, that number was 46 percent, even a slightly bit higher. Uh, would you acknowledge that the appetite for a third party candidate is not unique necessarily to this year?
2: No, I would totally disagree with that. I well, think the polling,
1: the polling suggests otherwise.
2: This is one poll you're citing, but there are dozens and dozens of polls would give you really clear facts. So 70 percent of the people in America do not want Biden or Trump. They don't want a rematch.
1: They don't. Well, hold on a second, because they don't want each of the—they don't want them to run. That does not mean they have a desire or an appetite for a third-party candidate. So those let are me, different Let me give questions. you some
2: more polls. So 59 uh, percent of the people say they would—in multiple polls, one says 59, one says 64 percent, would consider a third-party alternative. And there's another poll that just came out this week that said, given the choice between uh, Trump, Biden, and neither, neither wins. So well, you- in my lifetime, we have never had a time, ever— even close to this, 49% are registered independent. That's up about twenty 25 points from 20 years ago. I, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there's more of an appetite for it than ever before in history.
1: Well, you can't beat something with nothing. That's true. Right? I think That's we true. all agree with that. In I agree politics. with that. So is there any polling you have that suggests that any of the third party candidates mentioned yourself, <laughs> Joe Lieberman, others could beat Donald Trump and uh, and Joe Biden?
2: I mean, the campaign hadn't been run yet. So you just don't know what it looks like. I mean, I know the only place we've been on the ballot together, um, I do pretty well. I finished my eight years as governor with a 77 percent approval rating, highest in the country, and it was over 70 with Democrats, independents, and Republicans. Of course, I'm not well known across the country, but you know, you got to run a race to see what it's going to look like. Right nope. now, it's, uh, you know, the, the the people are pretty far ahead from where they ever have been before for voting for a third party.
1: Now, back in, in 2016, uh, also when there was an appetite for a third party candidate, there was a third party candidate and Jill Stein won more votes than the margin between Trump and Clinton, which may have made the difference, did make the difference in probably putting Trump over the edge. So how can you be so confident that and how can how can no labels be so confident that a third party won't elect Trump?
2: Well, you have more than a th- you have a third party candidate now and uh, the Green Party candidate is pulling about four or five percent away from completely away from Biden. So if you want to talk about a spoiler, they should focus in on Cornell West or they should focus in on the people that are pulling 30 percent of the people away in a primary. No labels is just has an idea that maybe if we get to this point where nobody in America wants the Republican or Democrat, they might run a ticket. We don't know who they are. Um, And we don't know who they would pull from or whether it would be a Republican or a Democrat. So but there are obviously issues and flaws or we wouldn't have two candidates that so many people don't want to vote for.
1: Governor Hogan, thank you for joining me here this afternoon. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Up next, I have so many questions now that a trial date has been set for Donald Trump. Could anything push it past the election? Could we see cameras in the courtroom? I've got the perfect person to ask. Plus, my thoughts on what's the right what the right's fascination with RFK Jr. reveals about their playbook at this moment. And later, Congressman Jamie Raskin's weekend routine and a wide-ranging conversation about how he handled personal grief while fighting for our democracy. We're just getting started today and we'll be right back.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze
1: The case of Trump's mishandling of classified documents now has a trial date, May 20th. That's later than the December date Special Counsel Jack Smith had requested, but well before the November election. Of course, there is a lot that has to happen between now and May of 2024, and Trump's lawyers will no doubt try to use every delay tactic in the book to dry out the legal proceedings. But apart from that, there are practical questions about how this trial will actually take place. Will Trump, as a former president and current presidential contender, gain any special considerations from Judge Cannon? And how will the breakneck pace of the campaign impact how Trump stands trial? I can't think of anyone better to dig into all of these questions than Neil Cartiel. He is a former acting U.S. Solicitor General and an MSNBC legal analyst. I have so many questions, but I want to start just kind of with the timeline of this, because I know you've said there's no reason for a delay, but there's also every reason to think that Trump's legal team will want to delay the process. What I mentioned some of them, but what tactics are you going to be watching for that you expect they might try to deploy?
4: So, first of all, Jen, I think that Donald Trump had a really terrible week, not just because of this May 20th scheduling in the stolen documents case, but also receiving that target letter from Jack Smith that you mentioned a moment ago about the January 6th and the days leading up to January 6th potential crimes that Donald Trump committed. So I think the bottom line in the news this week is that it's very likely that Donald Trump is going to be facing two more additional indictments from Jack Smith and from George. Georgia, um, before, say, Barbenheimer leaves the theaters. Um, It's really (laughs) that severe for him. And with with respect to the, you know, to the timing here, you're absolutely right. May 20th, if it holds, is an appropriate date. It's a date well before the election. It's a date that can accommodate the campaign schedule and the like. But Trump is going to try and take every single thing on an appeal. He's going to say, for example, there's the use of classified information and that procedure mm-hmm. violates his constitutional rights. He's going to say there's attorney-client evidence that's being introduced into this criminal trial and that violates his rights and the like. Um, the good thing about our system, though, is it's written so that defendants can't slow down and take what we call interlocutory or immediate appeals to the Court of Appeals or to the U.S. Supreme Court. You gotta wait till the end of the trial. So Trump can try, but I think right now, May 20th is a trial date that could and very well should hold.
1: Well, that's incredibly helpful. And I was waiting for the Barbenheimer reference we haven't had yet in the show today. I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, we've all also been in this terrible week for Trump on kind of a ver- another version of indictment watch uh, because of that target letter that was sent. But we also learned about a number of high level witnesses who Jack Smith and his team still want to talk to. What does that all tell you about the timing of a potential indictment? Should we all be kind of pressing refresh or could it be longer than this week?
4: Uh, I think we should be pressing refresh. I think it's likely that something will happen this week. So Jack Smith sent this target letter to Donald Trump saying that we're looking at you specifically for the violation of three criminal statutes. He doesn't have to do that under the Justice Department rules, but it's very common. And it doesn't mean that he's guaranteeing that there will be an indictment. Sometimes target letters are Mm -hmm. sent and there's no indictment that's ultimately brought. Here, however, I think that all indications are this is heading to an indictment. You don't send a target letter to a former president unless you're pretty darn sure that you've got the goods. And it does look like that Jack Smith has the goods. There's reports of the fact that Governor Kemp from Georgia has been called mm-hmm. before Jack Smith to provide evidence about the fake electors plot. There's suggestions that Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, may have provided evidence against him to the Jack Smith investigation. And there's of course what we all know. We saw for two months what Donald Trump did after the November election and all of the different things. And the January 6th committee has uncovered a lot, leading a very respected federal judge, Judge David Carter in California, a federal judge, to say it's more likely than not that Donald Trump committed a series of federal felonies, including two of which were named in the Jack Smith target letter.
1: So in that target letter, it it kind of outlined two of the charges that we many of us expected conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstructing an official proceeding. What was more surprising to us non-lawyers was a reconstruction era statute on the deprivation of rights. Uh, What was your reaction to seeing that in the target letter?
4: Gratitude. I said from the beginning that to that sec, that statute, 18 USC 241, Mm -hmm. which is, which was enacted to prevent the Ku Klux Klan from depriving newly freed African Americans of the right to vote and other things, that that was an appropriate statute to use. It really does describe what Donald Trump did, which is that he conspired with others to deprive people of their civil rights. In particular, what he was doing with his henchmen was saying, to state legislatures, hey, there's vote fraud here. You can throw out the vote in your state and just send your own hand picked slate of electors to Washington DC to count in the Electoral College and deprive all of the citizens in a state like Arizona or Georgia of their votes. That is a preposterous legal theory. Indeed, I just argued a version of it in the United States Supreme Court in a case called Moore versus Harper and won it six to three. I mean, it is a uh, it is, you know, so anti-democratic, so corrosive. And 18 U.S.C. 241 is exactly the right way to think about going after it.
1: Neal Katyal, thank you, as always, for providing tons of clarity for all of this legal uh, stuff we're all following. I really appreciate it. Up next, my thoughts on Republicans' admiration for RFK Jr., after a week in which they give him a megaphone on Capitol Hill. Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett spoke out forcefully against him in that hearing, and she joins me live. We're back after a quick break. Well, Republicans seem to have a new favorite Democrat, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And his long-shot presidential run against Joe Biden have become something of a fixation in right-wing circles, a bit of an obsession. Leading Republican candidate Donald Trump has openly praised him. Fox News has dedicated a considerable amount of airtime to him, raving over it, everything from his workout routine to his family name, yes, Fox and the Kennedy name, and how he is quote, polling so well against Joe Biden, even though, just as a side note, he is around 50 points behind, and that gap is apparently widening as people get to know more about him. But Fox has published more than 80 articles and videos about Kennedy since he launched his campaign in April. And just to put that in perspective, that kind of expansive coverage is usually reserved over there for woke Mickey Mouse, communist Barbie, and other topics along those lines. And more coverage seems to be coming. Sean Hannity is going to host a town hall with RFK Jr. this week. Even Republican lawmakers love this guy. When RFK Jr. testified this week at Jim Jordan's latest hearing of the so-called Government Weaponization Committee, Republican Mayor M- member Chip Roy gave him a special introduction.
2: Mr. Kennedy finds himself receiving the scorn of both the political left and right, because if one dares challenge the orthodoxy of the powers that be, then one is their enemy. As a graduate of the University of Virginia, Mr. Kennedy, no doubt, knows the following quote: "For here we are afraid; for here we are not afraid to follow truth wherever it may lead."
1: With all this talk of challenging orthodoxy, which, by the way, orthodoxy—I think he means science—it um, really makes you wonder: What is it that Kennedy stands for? That has the right so head over heels for him? Is it his years of work as an anti-vaccine advocate? His repeatedly debunked claim that vaccines cause autism? Is it his trafficking in a variety of COVID vaccine conspiracy theories, including ones involving microchips being inserted into all of our bodies? Are they fans of his recent comments that COVID was, quote, ethnically targeted to spare Chinese and Jewish people? Or is it his assertion that antidepressants like Prozac have caused the rise of school shootings in America? Obviously, completely insane and not true. Or that Wi-Fi causes cancer and something called leaky brain, whatever that may be. Or is it his claim that chemicals in the water could be turning kids transgender? I couldn't even cover all of these outlandish, crazy claims because we need to continue with our show. But RFK Jr. has a long list of them. And I'd like to know which ones make House Republicans so eager to platform him. Or maybe it's really not about RFK Jr. at all, but instead about Joe Biden. Like that saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That may make more strategic sense, but it would be incredibly cynical if Republicans were elevating a conspiracy theorist who spews false and inaccurate lies, some that could even be damaging to the public and public health, just to create trouble for their political opponent. I mean, that would be a leap. Even for the right to embrace a candidate enamored with conspiracies, just as a means to advance their own political objectives, they've never sunk that low before, or have they?
2: Do you accept that President Obama was born in the United States? No, is not know. Muslim. I, I really don't. Know. His father was with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to Oswald's being. Uh, you know, shot. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax.
4: If you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75% in value. And they say the noise causes cancer. You told me that one, okay? You know, there are those that say, you can test too much. You do know that. Who says that? We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. (laughs)
1: So maybe, just maybe, the problem isn't just RFK Jr. or even Donald Trump. Maybe the problem is the tendency to give credence to conspiracy theorists. Here's the thing. There are two explanations, only two here, for why the right loves RFK Jr. so much. One is that they genuinely believe in him and that his conspiracies deserve to be amplified in the national conversation. They think those conspiracies should be out there. The other explanation Is that they don't believe RFK Jr., but believe that it'll be beneficial to them if they help boost his megaphone anyway. So no matter how bizarre and dangerous his conspiracies may be, it doesn't matter. One explanation is ignorance. The other is cynicism. Both are a pretty embarrassing look for the right-wing machine trying to prop up this man's campaign.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze
3: Congressman, Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett is the
1: ranking member on the committee that heard RFK Jr.'s testimony this week, and she joins me after a quick break. And in our latest weekend routine, I discussed everything from Springsteen to Shakespeare with Congressman Jamie Raskin when I joined him for a hike just outside Washington. We'll be right back. Stacey Blaskett called out RFK Jr. plenty during his hearing in the Weaponization Subcommittee this week. But she called out her Republican colleagues just as strongly for platforming RFK
5: Jr. These folks have a plan. They want to give expression to the most vile sorts of speech here in this committee room because it prepares the ground for their own conspiracy theories and pseudoscience. And they apparently don't care. How many people are hurt or die as a consequence of their actions, either through lies about vaccines or threats to the safety of witnesses? Because nothing, nothing is more important to them than power. And Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, the ranking Democrat on the
1: Subcommittee on Government Weaponization, joins me now. So. You were very critical of Republicans for giving RFK Jr. a platform. And I'm just trying to figure out why they did this. And you outlined it a little bit there. But do you think they're actually on board with these conspiracy theories? Is this all about political power and hurting Joe Biden and other Democrats? What's your take on that?
5: Sure. Thanks so much for having me here with you. You know, and I think there are two levels to what the Republicans are doing, specifically on this committee. The first is, as we said, giving RFK a platform, which is a direct shot at Biden and at his presidency, because RFK Jr. has said he's running in the Democratic primary. So they think that he's going to, you know, kind of hurt him a little bit. I believe that over the next year, Americans are really going to learn what the Biden administration has done to support American families and drive down inflation and all the good works that they're doing. And so that's something that I'm not as concerned with. I think what's more insidious is what they're doing is giving individuals like like rfk a platform to desensitize americans and to also make the biden administration social media platforms and others hesitant about stopping untruths, stopping Mm -hmm. misinformation, and stopping what will happen during the height of the 2024 election, presidential election, which are Russian, Iranian, and Chinese trolls that are going onto those social media platforms and trying to suppress the American vote.
1: You gave such a powerful opening statement. That was the most clear articulation I've heard of why the Republican anti-censorship argument is bogus. What are the key points that you wish other Democrats and others would be making out there about that argument?
5: Well, you know, first of all, they want to talk about censorship, that anytime you point out untruths, you're censuring, you're stopping people from speaking. It's not that we're not stopping people from speaking. People can speak. But we're also going to give the American people the truth so that they can have science and facts and history against wild outlandish claims that the Republicans are trying to get, that's not only going to keep them from going to the polls or suppressing vote or telling untruths, but is also really very detrimental to the American people. You know, I mean, RFK has— put forth ideas that are both anti-Semitic, racist against not just Chinese, but has been his—he and his group have been the cause of measles outbreaks in Minnesota against Somalian communities, um, telling Black Americans not to be vaccinated at all while his own children are vaccinated, and really trying to break down Americans' belief in the rule of law, in truth, as it as it should be.
1: The, the vaccinating, which you noted, the vaccinating, uh, asking people to be vaccinated to attend his, an event he was hosting or something like that versus telling yes. people not to be vaccinated is really startling. It was such a good thing, an interesting thing to call it. I wanted to ask you because this week uh, there was also a lot of news on the legal front as it relates to the mm-hmm. former president. And The Washington Post published a piece that really stuck out to me about how intertwined Donald Trump's campaign has become with his legal defense. According to the piece, just over half of the money he raised last quarter, went to an affiliated PAC that is footing his legal bills. Uh, Your Republican colleagues continue to support him, of course. But is this campaign becoming increasingly about keeping him out of prison? And how is that even allowed for him to use so much of that money for his own legal defense?
5: Well, I don't know the FEC rules with regard to that, Um, but I do recognize that what Donald Trump has done is telling his base That him being in jail is them being in jail. You know, trying to say that the insurrectionists and those who have been charged rightly by our FBI, by the Department of Justice for the crimes that they committed are in fact them being put to crimes. And so it's this fear factor of their own lives that he's trying to intertwine himself with. When, Jen, we know that his life is nothing like a regular American's life. The kind of privileges and the kinds of work that his children have been able to do, um, you know, utilizing the White House for their own financial gain is nothing like what should, would happen in a regular American's life. But he has really driven his base to believe that and Uh, imprisoning him is imprisoning them, which is absolutely ludicrous. What the Department of Justice is doing is saying that no one is above the law. You are pretty steeped deeply into the
1: details of, of Donald Trump's actions as a former impeachment manager. I asked one of your colleagues, Jamie Raskin, this question, but I'm curious, as we all wait for a potential indictment uh, around Trump's efforts to overturn the election, what questions do you hope Jack Smith's investigation will shed light on that maybe you didn't have time or didn't get into details on uh, when you were looking into this?
5: Sure. Well, first, as uh, many people may know, Jamie Raskin is not only my colleague, but was my law school professor. So, <laughs> yes. I have enormous respect for him and mm-hmm. the work that he's been able to do and the fight that he has for our republic. You know, the impeachment that was done, and we wanted to do that impeachment while the president was still in office. Mitch McConnell dragged it until after the elect- after the swearing in of President Biden. But we really just had kind of a skeleton. Uh, and then the January 6th committee run for fabulously by uh, Benny Thompson, was able to put some sinew on what happened on January 6th and the lead up to it, as you said, um, Jen, Mm -hmm. which is so important. This is something that occurred over a protracted period of time. The things that I am hoping that we'll hear from, uh, you know, from Jack Smith, who has subpoena power, who can force people to come in and testify, which the committee was unable to do, as well as the impeachment didn't, was to actually hear conversations conversations, to hear from the people who were closest to the president, to have the documents for us to be able to see explicitly what the president was thinking in the lead up, and not only what he was thinking, but what he did to try and destroy our democracy.
1: Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Up next, Congressman Jamie Raskin on the deeply personal trauma he suffered just before the national trauma of January 6th. We talked about that and much more during a hike through one of his favorite places on earth. That conversation is coming up after a quick break. During his six years representing Maryland's 8th District in Congress, Jamie Raskin has distinguished himself as a champion of American democracy. As a constitutional scholar turned congressman, he's best known for the impassioned case he made against Donald Trump for inciting the January 6th insurrection during Trump's second impeachment. But... As I learned, his interests range from William Shakespeare to Bruce Springsteen. In fact, it was a member of Springsteen's E Street Band who gave him the distinctive bandanas he's worn since his chemotherapy for lymphoma last year. I recently joined the congressman for a hike in Rock Creek Park, where we discussed that and much more, including the deeply personal story of losing his only son.
6: Jen welcome to Maryland's beautiful 8th Congressional
1: District. I'm happy to be here. Should we go hike? Let's go hike. Let's go. So hiking is a part of your life. It's a part of what you do on a regular basis. How often do you hike? I, uh, well, I grew up
6: hiking this park, this your part of Rock Creek Park. took you hiking? Yes. Or I would go with other people, but uh, yeah, uh, I remember this area well from when I was a kid, um, and um, we took all of our kids hiking here in Rock Creek Park, and It's really an absolutely magical place, Mm -hmm. Um, as you can see, with very thick tree canopy. Mm -hmm. This is the Boundary Bridge connecting Maryland to Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. When Donald Trump was inaugurated and uh, my colleague John Lewis called for a boycott and we all decided not to go. I instead went on a hike, and I invited all my constituents to come. <laughs> that feels on a healthier. Hike. So, yeah. <laughs> now you yeah.
1: you just entered remission for cancer, which is amazing news. How are you feeling?
6: Well, thank you for asking, Jen. I feel um, well, hugely better from what I was feeling like during the thick of chemo. It was a brutal process, but I'm back in the land of the healthies, So. I'm very grateful for that.
1: You've kind of brought bandanas back to cool again, I would say. (laughs) You got one from a pretty famous person, Stephen Van Dant, right?
6: No, I didn't get one. I got a dozen. Oh, a
1: dozen from him. What was your reaction when you got those?
6: I couldn't believe it. I mean, what had happened was I I put one on when my hair really started to fall out with the chemo. Mm -hmm. And then a reporter said to me... Uh, you know, wh- what are you doing? Are you dressing up like a pirate? I said, oh, I'm dressing up like little Stephen Van Zandt, you know, because I always thought it was a cool look and I figured that would mm-hmm. be a way to do it. He saw the article and then he sent me a big bag of these bandanas and he said, these are, uh, they're, they're not a present, they're a hand-me-down. Oh, but he like he used them.
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> now, I know that you were a big Shakespeare fan because I've heard you quote Shakespeare. Yes. How did that start? Do you have a favorite play, sonnet?
6: Well, um, yeah, I guess it started in high school when I first started reading the plays, including, you know, Romeo and Juliet and Twelfth Night. We have a great Shakespeare for Young People group in my district called Lumina. And I've written some, I've rewritten some of the plays for the purposes of Of the young young people people producing them. And and that's... um, a wonderful feeling to see the light bulbs go off when they understand what's happening in the play. It makes and what it comes
1: see. to life. Should we sit down for a few minutes? Sure. So this is a place you have spent a lot of time with your family, hiking, including your son, Tommy. Yes. How did you connect with him in the park here, hiking?
6: Well, Tommy had come home um, in the spring semester of 2020 when they closed harvard law school down he was a second year student oftentimes tommy and i would just come to the park and take a long hike there was nowhere else really to go Mm -hmm. and after we lost tommy on the last day of 2020 um you know i'd come back to the park and get to recall recall the times that we had together and and think about him it's been a it's been a It's been a hard time for our family. It's been a long road. Tommy said, often it's hard to be human, and it is hard to be human. And he called on everybody to be as compassionate and as decent as possible to everybody.
1: In the period of time um, after you lost Tommy was also the insurrection and the attack on our nation's capital. Your daughter was with you. That feels like just a lot of trauma happening in one period of time. How did you even move forward?
6: Well, I mean, you know, when you're going through any of those traumas, um, you don't really experience yourself as having any choice other than to go through it and to try to respond the best that you can. Um, And in, in some ways, the shocking, catastrophic loss of Tommy was a certain kind of armor against the violence and the chaos of January 6th because I'd already suffered the absolute worst thing I could ever imagine. And when this was going on, uh, I just experienced uh, a lot of anger and a lot of wonder about how exactly this all happened and who set it up. Um, I didn't feel fear at that
1: point. I mean, Trump has been a test on our system, no question, in so many ways. There is no precedent for so many of these actions that he has been engaged in. Is our system prepared for that?
6: Look, it's up to us. Every generation has to decide how to choose. I mean, will the 21st century be a century of democracy and freedom and a use of all of the extraordinary new technologies to expand human happiness and prosperity, or is it going to be the use of the technologies by bullies and autocrats and tyrants to oppress people? Mm -hmm. And you can see it going in either direction.
1: I also want to know if there is a work of Shakespeare, because there are a lot of tragedies in there, that reminds you of the time we're living in today.
6: Well, there's a passage in The Tempest, hell is empty and all the devils are here. And I've thought about that a number of times <laughs> it feels uh, in the last few years.
1: Thank you for taking me to one of your favorite spots, which now I think is one of my favorite spots.
6: Well, you're welcome anytime. The pleasure is all mine, Jensaki, And it's free here. It's That's free. That's the great thing about a public park. I garden. appreciate
1: it. I'm coming back. Please
6: Thank come back. Thank you so back. much again. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Congressman Raskin, for showing me one of your favorite hiking trails and for such a uh, candid conversation. We're coming back after a very quick break. Don't go anywhere. One quick note before we go, Uh, my friend Chris Hayes is taking a well-deserved break this week, so I will be filling in for him this week on All In. Be sure to tune in starting tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern Time right here on MSNBC. And that does it for me today. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. You can also listen to every episode of the show as a podcast for free. Search for Inside with Jen Psaki wherever you get your podcasts. It's
0: that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.